Revelation 16. You're here for the class that everybody wants. So uh, all the vacationers and sick people are out of luck. It's Armageddon Day. Uh, <laughs> time for Armageddon. That's that's the thing everybody uh, gets excited about, trying to understand what that's about. All right, Revelation chapter 16 will begin in verse 12. <clears throat> Revelation 16, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates a great river Euphrates and its waters were dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw some coming out of the mouth of the dragon and the mouth of the beast and the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they were demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of, the, of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked or be be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So books, volumes, and podcasts, and everything in the world, all about our Armageddon at, at, at this point. So uh, we're moving into the sixth bowl. We've seen the in the first five. Uh, bulls very quick descriptions of what is going to happen we talked about last week that we uh, see due to the brevity and lack of detail that these seem to be similar to the uh, seven seals and how those first seals were warning of partial judgments trying to provoke the people to repentance uh, and you see the same thing here at the end of the fifth uh, bowl in verse 11 it says that they did not repent of their deeds. And so we're going to get into deeper judgments trying to invoke uh, this, this repentance. So the first picture that's given to us is in verse 12. That the sixth angel pours out his bowl on the river Euphrates and to dry up its waters and prepare the way uh, for, for the kings of the east. Uh, what would that be symbolizing? What does that look like why would we be drying up the euphrates and have you seen that in the hebrew scripture somewhere where we've seen that kind of imagery and in, in use muriel right you do have a picture of that right is clearly you're getting a a, a visual of, of a great army is is being mounted up and is going to come uh from the east and and, and wage uh, it, it, its attack it's it's something that you see used a lot in scriptures to describe uh, the idea of God bringing a judgment uh, upon a nation. Uh, if you're going to move from the east to the west, you, then you're going to be going through uh, the Euphrates. And you have even God in, in various prophecies talking about uh, doing, doing such such a thing. One of the things that is, I, I think, interesting is... When when Babylon fell to Persia, that actually was a literal way that it fell, is that how Persia was able to conquer Babylon was they diverted the Euphrates River so that they could go under the Babylonian walls, since the city sat on the, on the river, divert the river so that it got down low enough so that they could go under the walls and conquer conquer the city. In fact, that's why you see in, in the Daniel account with... Um, with uh, King Belshazzar and and he thinks everything's going to be great and having a party and then you have the the hand on the wall that your time is done and 
was right then that the time was was done. So uh, you you see that kind of idea used uh, in scriptures of if you're drying up a, a river, uh, you're you're waging a victory and. Uh, you could even see that with the, the drying up of the Red Sea, the drying up of the Jordan River when uh, Israel crosses in those two instances. Uh, is This is a, a, a march of deliverance and victory and judgment. Is here, here comes, here comes this, this powerful nation. Now, uh, I would say that the connection to Babylon is, is extremely useful because remember back in chapter 14, we already have this uh, prophetic future proclamation that as if it's already happened, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And we've seen the connection in chapters 13 and 14 of the Roman Empire as the, the world empire that is standing against God. And that association to Babylon would make sense since back in Babylon's day, they were the world power and they stood against God uh, and, and his people. So when you read verse 12, you are just getting a picture that there is a nation that is is building up and rising and is is preparing uh, for battle. In fact, at the end of verse 14, you see that to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So we're we're, we're warming up to to this kind of of picture. Now, uh, a really unusual picture is in verse 13 and verse 14. Coming out of the mouth of the dragon. All right, let's stop for a second. Who did Revelation say is the dragon? Devil. Devil. Back in chapter 12, we saw him identified that ancient serpent, deceiver of peoples. Chapter 12 told us that. So out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast. All right, we read about the beast back in chapter 13. Who's this beast? The Roman Empire, remember we've got the seven heads and ten horns, and that all connects back to Daniel chapter 7. And so we did a lot of work in, in Revelation 13 already, drawing those connections. And uh, I made the point to you that there's like very few points of agreement, and that's like one of the few, is that chapter 13 beast is a Roman Empire because of Daniel 7. Just uh, Nobody is uh, in disagreement with that. Uh, and then also in verse 13, this one a little bit more tricky, out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now, we haven't read about a false prophet yet by definition, but clearly this entity already exists because out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And we have seen this false prophet, though not called that, back in chapter 13 as well. Do you remember at the second part of chapter 13, we have a second beast there. And do you remember what that second beast is going around doing? Blaspheming God. God. And what else? And if you're not sure, go back to chapter 13 and start around verse 11-ish or so. signs. Signs and wonders causing people to do what? Worship the beast, right? And so uh, we, 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 that would make sense to describe this thing as a false prophet. You remember it says there, looks like a lamb, talks like a dragon. <laughs> this thing is faking being as from, from God. It's uh, calling for the world to worship, but rather than worshiping God, it's calling for people and promoting a worship of, of the beast. So um, I think when you read verse 13, it talks about out of the mouth of the false prophet, you should be reading that second beast because 
Chapters 12 and 13 of Revelation put those three together. Chapter 12 starts, here's the dragon. The dragon wants to wage war on the people of God. How's he going to do that? He's going to raise this beast that comes up. That's what chapter 13 opens with. And then we see another beast come in right after that. And the job of that beast is to get everybody to worship the, the, the first beast that we read about. So here they're called the dragon, the beast, and the, and the false prophet. Notice that what happens, though. And three unclean spirits like frogs are coming out of their mouths, for they are demonic spirits performing signs and going abroad to the kings of, of the whole world to assemble them for battle. All right. What should we do about frogs coming out of their mouths? <laughs> it's like the imagery just kind of gets a little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper. All right. When you start thinking about frogs, does your mind go anywhere in scriptures? To Egypt, and it's the only place you can go. Frogs is actually a very rare term image in the scriptures. Anytime frogs are used, rather it be in Exodus or when the prophets talk about it later, they're always talking about Egypt. You don't have a frog usage in any other kind of context. So I think that might help a little bit as we're, again, conjuring up the judgment plagues that were uh, used by God against against Egypt when you start reading about the, the frogs. Now, I want you to think for a minute about, uh, and if you're not very familiar with the, the plague of frogs, Exodus uh, 8 is where you, where you want to go if you want to look at this. Uh, <clears throat> you have Moses trying to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. And so then you have Moses causing the frogs to all come out everywhere. How did Pharaoh's magicians respond to that plague to cause Pharaoh to not let the people go? And if you're not sure, go read Exodus 8 real quick. What did Pharaoh's magicians do? They bring up frogs as well. Which I always find hilarious because if I'm fair, I'm like, I don't need more of these. <laughs> I've already got plenty of frogs. I don't need your magic to bring more frogs. Help me out here. Let's get rid of the frogs and then, then we're going to be okay. But you're told there that these uh, magicians and whatever they are actually bring up more frogs. They are using that as a way to deceive Pharaoh so that Pharaoh does not obey God, does not let the people go. And I think that's the, the idea of the imagery here. When you're reading about these frogs described as these unclean spirits that are coming out of their mouths, with the way the Egyptian magicians used the frogs, it was a way to deceive Pharaoh so that he would not obey God, but continue in his rebellion and continue in that deception and that's what I think you see happening in, in, this in this very scene is that you have the dragon, you have the beast, you have the false prophet. They're all ready for battle. And what they're doing is doing everything that they can to continue what we have read about over these past few chapters, which is 
cause the people to worship their pagan gods, cause the people to worship the emperors, to continue this imperial worship. They are going to do everything they can to blaspheme God, discount a turning to God, and to continue their worship of the false and the pagan and the imperial and give their lives to the Roman Empire like we saw in chapters 13 and 14. So you're seeing this idea of they're going to keep doing this, even though the judgments are falling. Nobody's going to, you know, raise their hand and go, hey, maybe we should stop worshiping these idols and false gods and emperors and have all these altars. Remember, I put that on the screen many weeks ago about all the temples and all the altars that they have and all this. Maybe we should turn to the living. And nobody's going to do that. They're going to keep the deception uh, going. And so that's what I think you see happening in verses 13 and 14 is by using that that unclean spirit, frog imagery, deception imagery, demonic spirit imagery, performing signs. Uh, that goes back to chapter 13 as well as all of those efforts by the beast are intended to keep the people from worshiping God, but live in the delusion that their pagan gods and that their Roman emperors and all of their leaders are all going to still be uh, where their source of uh, life, income, power uh, is all derived. So so they're, they're not giving up is the picture that I see in verses, verses 13 and 14. All right. Now, questions about that, because that's a that's a pretty rich uh, little little image there, but I think the Exodus connection helps us out there, Julie. I mean, I just think it makes great sense because I think from the beginning, the devil's entire plan, his entire—I mean, his best tool is deception. You know, we see that in the garden right. where he deceived Eve and yep. the fruit, using her own weaknesses. You know, the right. lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the <clears> of <throat> And so it would make perfect sense that these three are trying to, like you just pointed out, performing signs. That's what they were doing. Yep, that's what they're doing in Egypt. Keep them in that state of delusion. And that's exactly what they need. They're preparing for battle. Hey, let's keep our our people with the mark. Let's keep them in a delusion. That's right. And obviously we see that today. It's it's a sad thing, but the the delusion is really that deception, delusion, whatever. It's really Satan's best. Yes. It's his best trick. Yes. Yes, take your take your eyes off of God and worship something else is, is what you have happening. And the mechanism that is being described in, in these last three chapters is get the, the nations to not worship God, get the peoples to turn away from God and be deceived by the power of the Roman Empire so that they will do what it says and worship it and follow it so that when they go about saying we need to kill the Christians, they're going to go, okay. Uh, they're a threat to our society. Okay. I mean, I, 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 I handed out that paper to you of uh, Pliny writing to Emperor Trajan. And that's what he's saying is these Christians are a threat. People aren't going to go into the temples and worship the gods. And what's going to happen to us if we don't have people worshiping the gods? The gods are going to get mad and that's going to destroy us. And so we need to get rid of these Christians that tell us not to do that. And that, that's his perspective as you come Already at the end of the first century. I mean, never mind when we get to the second and the the third century. I think extending on what the sister just said, in today's society, it's not even necessary to kill the Christians. It's the deception with um, using Lord's word in an incorrect manner. Sure. Because we have plenty of religious groups 
<laughs> sure. You know, and bring in some of the wood. Yeah. But the deceptive way they put it out and communicate it to their congregants. That's right. It's what's keeping them in the delusions and yeah. the delusions state. So our job is to make sure that we're grounded in God's word so that we can refute some of those teachings yeah. and make them see right. the way God's word yeah. was intended for us to be taught. That's right. When you realize how deceptive the deceiver is, he's going to use everything to get people to turn away from God. And that's what you see unfolding in this sixth bowl is trying to communicate how wide this deception is. Because you'll notice it says in verse 14, to the kings of the whole world, you know, it's just the whole world's going to get caught up in this and turn their backs on God. I don't know if there's any. Oh, yes. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. Yes, if you remember in Acts, Paul and particularly his companions are in Ephesus. And the problem is, uh, we're all going to lose our business with our little idols to Diana or Artemis, depending on if you're Roman or Greek on, on, on the reading of that. And they lose their minds. And actually have a riot that happens in Ephesus because of the financial impact. We, I, I don't know. I'm, I'll keep saying it through our study because there is no way for us to grasp what the world was like because we don't live in a culture or a country that intertwines its economy and its politics and its, and its religion all in one unified base. We, we keep all those things separate. Publics and economy is over here and politics is, is up over here and religion is over here and, 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 and publics and, and, and Christ have nothing to do with each other. They, they sit in separate quadrants. But in the Roman Empire, that all was together. That was one and the same. To go to the store was to worship the pagan idols. And to be able to have a, a, a living was a part of the paganism. And if you wanted to buy meat, you're going to where the idolatry is to go get your meat. That's why Paul has to write to the Corinthians about chapters 12, 13, and 14. No, in, in 2 Corinthians, about how do you handle all of that. And in 1 Corinthians, both he has to deal with that. How do you handle buying meat in the marketplace? It's meat sacrificed to idols, but this is the only way to eat meat. So what are you going to do? There's not a separate, oh, hey, we're the anti-pagan marketplace over here and we sell meat too. That's not how it worked. So it's, it's just, it's very hard for us to try to think about what that culture would have been like where they were inextricably linked, whereas our culture is they are so separated they cannot be linked. And that, it's, it's a real, real difficulty. Yeah. You know, you just brought something to mind. Growing up in the Caribbean, our country was predominantly Catholic. Mm-hmm. And the government wasn't required in the religion. We had like 95 percent I would say, yeah. or more. Yeah. Catholics, that's what I grew up as. That's yeah. what my family here still are. And that's then, right. Um, That's right. That didn't sit well for us. <laughs> and so coming to the United States yes. to schooling and to get schooling and stuff like that, then we started looking for not just Catholicism, right. 
Bible teaching. That's right. And that's what led us to the church. That's right. And so when you have such intertwining of religion and government, it does keep the people at bay. Because if you right. talk to my mom and my aunt and my grandaunt and all of them, they can cite every scripture in Latin for you, mm-hmm. but they have no clue what it means. Mm-hmm. So yep. you're just keeping people uh, ignorant. Yep. And, and, and just telling them whatever you want and they just believe it will happen about questioning. Yeah. That's deception. It is. And, and and we we often miss that there is so much of the world that is those elements coupled together that we're just so used to them being decoupled that we're like, everybody's decoupled, right? Well, no. And there's lots of places where that's not the case. And, and this is the kind of difficulty you, you run up against, Dina. You know, um, we are moving, unfortunately. We are moving we are that moving way. That that's right. You know, we're here for an appointed time to learn and to understand because we are already in that. Unfortunately, things are happening. That's right. We're not aware of it. That's right. That's right. So we are actually arriving to this. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's one of the things I always try to encourage everybody is as we slide in further and further away from God, this isn't new terrain. This is not, well, what do we do? Uh, No, we're just going to be more like the first century than ever before. And the Bible will be all the more real to us than ever before because their culture will be our culture versus we've tried to figure out what's their culture like? How do we apply this? Well, it'll be really easy real soon. We'll just be like, yeah, they're dying because of of their their belief in Christ. Okay, well, now we're going to understand that in a very real way. That's exactly right. Uh, You'll notice that verse 15 has... Uh, a, a parenthetical, and, and this has been the kind of thing that, that you see the book of Revelation keep doing as it describes a severe judgment. There's almost the side breath that says, so hold on and don't give up. Call for endurance, stay faithful, stay ready, watch out. It's going to come and you need to be prepared for it for its coming. So verse 15 does the, the same thing. Stay awake, keep your garments on that you may not go about naked. Or be seen or exposed. I would I would sum up that that phrase as like the parable of the talents, the parable of the virgins. As Jesus told the same kind of parables about you better be ready for when judgment comes. And we've talked many times in our studies that context has to tell you what judgment you're talking about. You know, he's tell sometimes he's telling them you need to get ready because when Jerusalem's surrounded by armies, you need to be ready ready to run. Here is we're in a context of. You need to be ready for when the Roman Empire caves in and falls and is attacked, that you need to be prepared and not be a a part of all of that. And there's times where you have God saying, I'm coming like a thief. Be watchful and ready for the final coming and make sure you're ready and dressed and prepared and all of that. God always is saying, you need to be ready, whether it's going to be an individual issue or a national judgment or the end of the world. Have your lamps burning, have your clothes on, be prepared to stand before God and give an account because you don't know when those things are are ultimately going to happen. And so verse 15 uh, is doing the same thing. Be ready because judgment's coming. All right, you ready for what you're here for? Verse 16. And they assembled them at the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. That gets everybody all excited. Armageddon, Here, here you go. So one of the things that is particularly fascinating about the phrase 
Armageddon is if you were to figure, okay, well, what does Armageddon even mean? This, it just, and you've, if you've looked this up, you know, it just means Mount of Megiddo. The problem is there's no such thing. <laughs> what's so fascinating about the, the term is you, go, you read all the scholars and they go, there isn't a Mount Megiddo. There is a plain of Megiddo. There's a valley of Megiddo, but there's not a Mount of Megiddo. That sounds like the opposite. So, I think one of the things that helps here is just to remind us we're not talking about actual geography. I mean, for example, can you imagine all the kings of all the world assembling on a mountaintop in one place? I mean, symbolism, we're in symbolism here. <laughs> so we're, it's almost another way for the text to keep reminding us, don't, don't shift out of my symbolic pictures that I've been showing you. But when you do read about Megiddo in the Old Testament scriptures, in those Hebrew scriptures, it is always a place of decisive battles and victories. And probably some of the most notable are like when, with Josiah, who's told, don't go into battle, and he does it anyway, and he falls in the valley of, of Megiddo. I've just put a pile of text on the screen. that These are all locations where you have an assembling together for a battle and a decisive uh, victory or a decisive outcome from that battle happens. So I want you to get a sense that this seems to be what it's talking about is when you start saying all the kings of the earth are all going to assemble at Megiddo, you kind of go, well, something's going to go down here then. Uh, that's not the place you want to be. Something catastrophic and decisive is, is going to happen. Now, I do want you to notice something about verse 16. Does it say that there's a battle there? Does it say that they fight? I just want you to notice it is very interesting for all the things that are made up about Armageddon. The only thing the text says is that all the kings of the earth all gather at that location for battle. But that's the end of Armageddon right here. We're we're done with it. (laughs) It's not going to talk about that again. When we get to chapter 19, we're going to see the outcome of their gathering, but Armageddon's not coming back into play again. So I want you to see what the symbolism is then, is you are having a gathering of all the kings of the earth, and if you gather them in in Armageddon, in the valley of Megiddo, then what you are saying is a decisive victory is forthcoming. A decisive defeat is forthcoming. Uh, they're, they're about to be dealt with, and that's why they're being gathered at this particular place. Mike? I, I think uh, verse 14 reinforces that. Yep. It says exactly that. Um, another assembly, reinforcing the same assembly. Yeah, exactly. And, and when you're in the Valley of Megiddo, I mean, you're, you're basically sitting ducks. So the Valley of Megiddo was an important strategic uh, battle place because you funneled between two hills uh, and that's why the battle would always take place in that little crossroads area. So if if all your army's hanging out there we, we, we would call that you're sitting ducks. You're, you're, you're in trouble. You're doomed. That, that's what's about to happen to the kings of the earth here. And notice that fits the, the, the stream of these, these bowls of wrath. We've seen the first five bulls unfold. The people are not repenting. They're still cursing God. They're not opening their eyes. They're still worshiping the beast. And so the next step is, okay, then we're going to judge the the rulers of the earth. We're going to bring about this 
catastrophic judgment because they are resisting God uh, and, and still continuing to believe the deception of, of the beast. Okay? Uh, questions about that before we do the seventh bull? You had no idea Armageddon was that easy, right? I mean, there's not a lot there. You, I mean, for all this, is not a lot there. And man, a lot's made of what's not there. It just says they're gathering at that place, Charlotte. This is probably a silly question, but in all the Hebrew writings about the Bible, where is this word ever Armageddon itself, no. And again, it underscores the symbolic nature of this. This is not supposed to be everybody break out their maps, put a pushpin there, and when we see all the kings of the earth all lining up in this location on this mountain, well, then we all know it's the end of the world. That, that you know, that's how it's often portrayed. But it, it, yeah, even the the scriptures don't speak of uh, Armageddon itself. That's right. All right, you sure you're good with that? I just solved all your Armageddon problems. <laughs> Tina? The plane. Yeah. 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 And you want to like? It's a good thing I wasn't. There. I want to raise my hand and go. Actually, Armageddon means the Mount of Megiddo, so <laughs> I'm that guy that ticks off the tour guide. Uh, but yeah, no, it's a, it's a it's the place where the battles all happened. Is as you funneled into that valley, and you'd have the war break out like that. Like, well, I guess just continuing that thought, uh, it would just make sense. If there's a decisive victory for one side. Yep. Yeah, and as you're reading this, you can already get a sense of who's going to win this. God is, right? We're going to gather all the kings of the earth who have all been deceived by the dragon. And here, and who's going to win this? Well, God is. And chapter 19 is going to show that. And what's interesting is Armageddon's not going to come up. You're just going to see Christ riding in on the white horse splattered in blood saying, I trampled my enemies. And you're like, he got them. He took care of it, Muriel. <clears throat> Yes, but they're not called the Mounts of Megiddo. They're called something different. Yeah, they have different names on them. Yeah, they're not called that. That's what's, again, fascinating. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, mountains are usually depicted as places of security and we can't be defeated. Uh, if you think about the minor prophets that will uh, make proclamations against Edom, one of the problems is, oh, you sit lofty in the mountains and nobody can touch us. And God goes, I'll throw you down. <laughs> Same idea here is you might think you're going to win this and be all high and mighty, but God will throw you down, Julie. <laughs> Yeah. That you know they're surrounded behind 
Yeah. It is, and, and it is symbolic, but again, it, it makes yeah. sense. Yeah, it represents something that, that's actually going to happen, but using those figures in that way. Uh, and, and so, yeah, to the point, if, if God wanted that actual physical location, then saying the plain of Megiddo would have been very logical because God's used the plain of Megiddo on a whole pile of occasions <laughs> to, to have these decisive battles uh, t- take place there. Uh, but rather using the mountain seems to underscore, I don't want you to look at the location. I want you to remember what happened in this area, how you always have uh, these monster defeats take place there. All right, seventh bowl, verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came from the temple, out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. And the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great and made her drink the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on the people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail. Because the plague was so severe. All right. Verse 17. Final bowl is poured out. What's the proclamation? It is done. Now remember, we were told back in uh, chapter 15 and verse 1. That when the seventh angel and the seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So now the seventh bowl pours out, and by great logic we go, and yep, that must be the end, and it even solidifies that by saying this is the last one, this is the finale uh, in regards to in regards to this. I just I'm going to put on the screen just a reminder that we have talked about how the the prophecy of Daniel fits so strongly uh, into the book of Revelation. In fact, I, I've strenuously argued that revelation is revealing what was unclear and sealed in the book of Daniel and that this is the explosion and explanation and details of it. And so I want to remind you that you have so many places in the book of Daniel that talk about this fourth terrifying beast that needs to be destroyed. In chapter two, it's described as the base of that statue that has the clay and iron and that in the legs and in the feet in chapter seven the fourth terrifying beast that that daniel cannot begin to comprehend in in chapter nine it is the desolator has desolation is decreed on the desolator to put all those words in the right order so you have judgment on the one who is making desolation on jerusalem and then in, in chapter 11, you're seeing the Roman Empire again. It's blaspheming against God. And it's described again as, as have, suffering a defeat. So uh, it's as logical for us to be seeing pictures of uh, Rome's fall because that is what Daniel uh, ha, has talked about. When you look at verses uh, verse 18, 
What is your takeaway when you see those visuals? You got lightning and thunder and rumbles and a great earthquake. What does the, what do those symbols typically do? Upheaval. Upheaval. Good. Yeah. Yes, I think you have to see is when, when in, in not only in the prophets but also earlier in the book of Revelation. Uh, you have like chapter eight. That's why I put in yellow chapter eight, verse five. Uh, when God is acting in judgment and power, it is usually described as thunders and rumbles and lightnings and shakings and quakings and all of that. Uh, and the same thing is being done here is seventh bowl is poured out. This is going to represent the end of God's wrath as this judgment against this beast is is unfolded and it's described as god himself sending lightning and thunders and rumblings and earthquakes and uh it is all going to 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 be judged and it's going to be its its end and you'll notice that's what chapter or chapter but verse 19 uh says there in verse 19 you have the great city all right so let's see keep looking at verse 19 what's the great city God doesn't say that, though, but I think you're right. It says Babylon the Great in verse 19, right? The great city is divided and falls here and is his judge. And it says, God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And again, we've done other studies and scriptures. God remembering things doesn't mean he forgot. And he went, oh, yeah, Babylon, right. I need to do something about that. Remembering is always covenantal. It'll say like he remembered Abraham. He remembered Isaac. He remember he'll remember somebody. He remembers Joseph. Well, what is he? That's covenantal remembering. The idea is I have a covenant that I've made and I'm keeping that promise. He made a promise. He was going to deal with this wicked nation. And so now it's dealt with. God remembered Babylon and is making her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath. And we've talked about then how Babylon is is clearly connected to, in the first century, the Roman Empire, that great power at that time. Uh, You'll notice that the islands in verse 20 and the mountains are all fleeing and running. So this is a a final judgment. This is the end. You see the same thing back in chapter 6 and verse 14. Uh, And more Exodus imagery in verse 21. Great hailstones falling from heaven. Uh, God uses hail as, as images of judgment. I put Exodus on there, but there's lots of other places in the scriptures where God uses that figure where he is judging the peoples and nations. And so great hailstones are falling just like uh, in the Exodus. And then verse 21 ends on, and when this great judgment happens, all the world returns and they decide we need to stop being idolaters. And we're all going to be God worshipers now. No way. No. Even when nations fall, people shrug their shoulders and go, okay, I'm going to keep doing what I was always doing. Human nature has not changed in thousands and thousands of years. (laughs) Massive catastrophes happen and people go, carry on. Let's keep doing what we were always doing. We will learn absolutely nothing from what has happened to us and we will keep doing our foolish things. That's, that's... And we still do it today. It's exactly right. And so uh, nations rise and fall and we go, meh. And kings and leaders rise and fall and we go, huh. And <laughs> nobody goes, 
hmm, <laughs> and that's what happens here, Muriel. Yep. Like saying, yep. And then we go, thanks, we got it. Thanks. <laughs> that wasn't you at all, you know. <laughs> it's, uh, it's all us. So, yeah, that's exactly right. So, uh, I think one of the big conclusions that the book of Revelation is trying to show us is that even the fall of nations and leaders and powers, uh, it doesn't generate repentance. It's supposed to. It's supposed to. It's supposed to cause people to go, hello. (laughs) Just as individual trials are intended to wake people up and get them to look upward, so national judgments are also intended to wake people up and get their eyes upward. But more often than not, that doesn't work individually nor nationally. People just go, whatever, and keep right on rolling. Mike? Yeah, it's supposed to. But what inevitably happens, people just go, well, that was really bad. (laughs) Right? Oh, that was terrible. Well, I'm glad we're not having to go through that again. That was a really awful thing that I had to go through or we had to go through or whatever happened. Uh, Unfortunately, in the moment, we feel the pain and, and start groping for something out of it but once it's it we've come through it um we we typically just kind of think well that was just a bad season and don't think about it as god turning the screws uh we just refuse 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 to turn eyes upward and think maybe i'm supposed to get something out of this maybe god's ringing my bell maybe i'm supposed to figure some things out about this and i think that's always important to do um I'll bring in Job as a reminder. Bad things doesn't mean you've sinned, right? But bad things do mean you need to get your eyes up, okay? Doesn't mean you have necessarily done something wrong, you know, and here comes God with the paddle. But it does mean God's saying, time for some refining, Time for some learning, time for some discipline, time for some teaching, time for some correction. That is supposed to happen. And you're supposed to look up. And you might be able to find, like the book of Proverbs, you have been running astray. Or you might find, I've been been okay, but boy, this is teaching me a whole lot more <laughs> about whatever it is in my life that I need to get get rid of or changed or transformed. So it's important that... You see God use that, but don't necessarily make an equation like Job's three friends. You must have sinned, and if you repent, then your life will get better. That's not how God runs the world. It's not how the whole book of Job is setting forward. No, 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 no. But you don't sit there and go, well, God doesn't know what he's doing. (laughs) No, God's moving pieces and, and, and doing things. That's what the beginning of Job is showing us. Even though Job's righteous, he can do, 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 do. To get you to learn and change. Yeah. Isn't it? I mean, it seems strange to me that these people didn't blame their gods for 
Well, have you ever noticed that what pagans do is, and this is, this is tongue-in-cheek because our country's pagans. And what pagans do is they go, oh, we've made them mad, so we need to devote more time to it to make it happy. Rather than looking at the God and saying, you are a useless God. Why do I worship you? I need to trade you in for something that's real. We go, oh, well, I'm not getting the satisfaction that I thought, so I'm going to devote more time and effort into it. Right? So the God must be angry, so we must appease it more. We need to get it back on our side. And that's what we do with our sins. Well, it didn't do what I thought it would do. Rather than throwing our sin away, we go, I will do more of it. Because Satan comes to us and says, you just didn't do it right. Do, do it bigger. <laughs> do it more often. Then you will be happy. So, yeah, that, that's what pagan thinking does. Is pagan thinking says, the God is not the problem. I'm the problem. And I need to make the God happy by giving myself more to it. Rather than the righteous person says, the God is the problem. <laughs> and I need to turn to the right God and get things squared away. But we, we don't do that. Frank? Like Jeremiah 44, yeah. uh, yeah, here, here are the people of Jeremiah's day. Babylon keeps t- attacking us. And the reason why is because we stopped worshiping the gods like you told us to. We're going to go back and worship the gods. That's pagan thinking. We're full of that. So, yeah. No, a wise person says, maybe your gods are not useful. Anyway, Lord willing, next week, chapter 17. Now, even though we're out of time, let me give a quick chapter 17. And I want you to notice that verse one says, essentially, I'm going to give you the details now all the more. Let me show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. So we keep kind of diving down deeper and deeper detail. Had a big overview in 14. Narrows it down, more details in 15 and 16 about these seven bulls. And now chapter 17 is, I'm going to just lay it all out for you, okay? So roll up your sleeves and dig into chapter 17. We'll probably be there a while. 15-minute break, reconvene at 1030. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it.